0: 2 Peter chapter 1, the message is entitled, To Know Christ. Paul wrote in Philippians 3, verses 8 and 10, he was talking about his testimony. And he said, I count all things as lost compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish So that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Peter is coming to the end of his life. Nero's government is about to kill him. And he wants to leave his people with these words, with this last thought. Every good pastor, this is what he wants, every father for his children. Do you know the Lord for sure? For sure. Father, we pray that you would open the word of God to our hearts. Give us understanding. Lord, apply it. That we might go from this place secure in our knowledge that we know you in our relationship. That we might be useful and fruitful. That one day we might stand before you and hear, well done, faithful servant. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you think about your relationship to the Lord, what do you think about? We looked recently in in this series in times like these at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And Paul said, I want to give you some information there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 so that you might have courage about life. And what was the information? That you don't have to fear death. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you have that relationship with Him, you have that confidence so that we can be the most courageous people in the world. Because death doesn't stop anything but this heart beating, and then we just go be with the Lord. And that's when life really begins. So he gave us courage. I think in this passage, Peter wants his people to feel purpose, to make sure they knew they were being used of the Lord. Because there are always a mixed multitude Chuck Swindoll said, when they came out of Egypt, there was a mixed multitude. Whenever the Lord is working, there's always a mixed multitude. And so we want to make sure we're always presenting the gospel, just in case there's someone that's grown up in church, has all kind of religion, has all kind of knowledge about Jesus, but do you know him? Now we could, because of the internet, we can have all kinds of information about famous people. And you can know all kind of details about their life, but if you ran into them, it's a difference if you know them or not, right? You can study Peyton Manning's, all of his records, and you can know where he's been in school and all that he's done. But if he met, met you on the street, would he say, hey, how you doing? Would he know you? See, the Bible says that one day we're all going to stand before the Lord. And there's going to be some people that are going to be very surprised. In Matthew chapter 7, he's coming to the invitation of that great Sermon on the Mount. And he said, many are going to come to me in that day and say, Lord, you remember me. I've done many things in your name, and I've cast out demons and many for wonderful works in your name. And he said, I will say to them, depart from me, worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Those are the saddest words any human being can hear. And yet so many people based their eterni- eternal destiny on something they did. Well, I said the prayer. I asked Jesus in my heart. I know where it comes from a scripture. But the scripture doesn't say that's how you're saved. Ask Jesus in your heart and then live how you want. And then God has to let you into heaven even though you lived like the devil for 60 years because you said a prayer and he's got to let you in. No, no, no. Jesus' invitation went like this. If any man would come after me, you want to be a follower of Christ, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Where was Jesus going? He was going to the place of sacrifice. And Peter knew there was some people, I, I'm sure, in, in the congregations he'd been in, he was concerned because there were people that had learned the lingo. They knew how to talk. They learned how to study. But he just didn't have that peace yet. They really knew the Lord because they were lacking peace, maybe. They were lacking joy. Maybe the life was always drama, you know. There's always something else going on. They hadn't found that higher plane. It didn't look like their feet were established on the rock, and God has established they're going and made a straight path. And so there was always that question. And so Peter, he wanted to make sure there's some people and the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that who knows the mind of a man but the man himself. And we can't go in each other's minds and say, Oh, well, I know that person saved. We can just look at fruit. But I think Jesus gave us these same kind of passages, like Matthew 13, when he said the sower goes out to sow, and what's he doing? He's sowing the gospel. He's just getting it out there, sowing the gospel. And some of the seed falls on the roadside, and the birds come along, and he said, that's Satan. And... uh They hear the gospel. They never think about it again. Other people, the the, the seed falls on some ground that is stony. But maybe there's a little moisture left over from the dew in the morning. And at first it begins to grow and spring up. And then the sun comes out. And Jesus explained that. He said, by and by, they're offended by the word. Oh, they started out great. And it really sounded good. I want to go to heaven just like pliable in Pilgrim's Progress. He wanted to go to heaven. But when the testing came... It was like the wind blowing the chaff away, and he he couldn't stay. Why? Because there was no root in himself. He was offended by the word. And then next he says, but there's some seed that falls among the thorns. And they're not offended by the word. They're just distracted by everything else in life. And at first, oh, this is great. Yes, I like the gospel, but then other things grow up. You know, life, life happens, and there's riches and the cares of this life, and pretty soon, you know, we understand. I'm just too busy for the Lord. And he said they become unfruitful. Why? They they don't have any root. The the cares of this world choke them out. But he says some of the seed falls on good ground. And all the good ground that the seed falls in brings forth fruit. It's all fruitful. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. And yet, in American Christianity, there's preached this message that you can say a prayer and live however you want and that God has to take you to heaven. It's not found in the Bible. Jesus' message was... You be perfect even as my father in heaven is perfect. How can he say that? Because we can't be perfect. Because he's given us his life. When you receive Christ as your Savior, it's not about you're going through some religious things or showing up enough, but you partook of the life of Jesus Christ. And just like my children, you know, uh when, when you call my house, you know, and, and when the boys, their voices started changing, they'd call, and sometimes somebody said, Oh, pastor, and they say, Well, yeah, this is pastor. Can I help you? And then they'd laugh, and they'd know it was somebody else, and they'd give the phone to me and say, Oh, that sounds like you. Well, not really all that strange, you know. Genetically, they're connected. I remember when my son PJ got married, and David and, and Ben went with me down to Chicago to pick up some of PJ's friends from the naval base for the wedding. And uh, they're getting in the car. Now, to me, Ben and David look a lot different. But I'm their dad. I've known them, you know, all their life. And, uh, and, and so I, they look different to me because I know them so well, but the guys get in the car, they look at you and say, I told you, they all look like twins. <laughs> Why? Because there's relationship. So Peter's not writing this to tell us, oh, I'm not sure if you're in yet. You better jump a little higher. He loves his people. He wants them to be so secure in the love of Christ, they will have the security to just do everything for the Lord and accomplish the purpose for which God saved them. He wants them to be secure, but he also wants those to not have any false hope and to make sure that they're rooted and grounded in the word of God and the love of Christ, not in their own works. So he writes this, and first he starts talking about what is your view of your relationship to the Lord. Now, in American Christianity, there's also taught this idea that God is just there for you so you can have this great life and just, you know, he's just there to meet all your needs and you can have your best life now. That's a lie. Paul, Peter writes, he says, Peter, a slave of Jesus Christ. He had been purchased from the slave market of sin to be Jesus' slave. See, his attitude now is, what does Jesus want from me? It's not, what can I get out of God? It's like, I belong to God, now. I am so in love with him because he set me free from sin. He put my feet on the path, and I just want to glorify him. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we all have this new ambition. If you really know Jesus Christ as your Savior, part of the spiritual DNA that he gave you is you want to please God. You have this ambition, whether you're here on earth, still in your body, or you're separated from your body, your home in heaven, you have this ambition to please God. That's just in there. Now, the Bible says God has put that in natural children also. It says in Proverbs, the glory of children is their fathers. Now, fathers, a lot of fathers, they run over that, and they discourage their children And pretty soon their children even develop a hatred for their father. Why? Because their father didn't do his job. But our father in heaven, he's always loving us. He's always doing his job. And Paul says here, or Peter says here, I'm a slave of Christ, and my opportunity to serve is being an apostle. You see, he saved every believer he saves. He gifts you for a purpose. He saved you on purpose, and he gifts you For a purpose. And yet how many Christians don't know what their spiritual giftedness is? You say, Paul, now, you've said that before. You're just trying to make me feel bad. No. I'm telling you, you're missing out on joy. Because when you figure out what your spiritual giftedness is, it's, it's like when my son David, I remember I went to his first day of practice. I was coaching high school football at the time, but I got to go down and watch. Every kid showed up, wanted to be the quarterback. They were all John Elway in those days. Even someone wore a little practice jersey, number seven, you know, and they all wanted to be quarterbacks. Well, by the time those guys graduated, the guys that stayed, there's a lot of them that realized, I can't be a good quarterback, but I can really be good, a good linebacker. I could really be a good running back. I could barely be a good offensive lineman. It's the same thing. They'd have been miserable and discouraged trying to be a quarterback if they weren't gifted for that. And when a believer, Oh, that's what I do. You find that place in the body of Christ and you begin to think, wow, all this in heaven too because there's joy in serving the Lord in the place that God has gifted you to serve. You just love it. You think, wow, this is amazing. So I'm not telling you something to make you feel bad. Peter didn't decide, I'm going to work real hard. I think I'll be apostle. God just chose him. In all Peter's life, he was a slave, and he was a learner. Now, Paul warns us about everybody wanting to be a teacher. What we ought to be is the methetes. It's a Greek word. It just means learner. It means disciple. We ought to be a learner of Jesus all of our life. What pleases the Lord? How can I grow? And that's what Peter's talking about here. To those, he's writing this, to those who received a faith the same kind as ours. Now, we don't want to look at the apostles and say, well, they, you know, they're a little closer to the Lord. They knew the Lord, therefore they had a better opportunity. And so that's why you know, we, can, we can just not have expectations about the faithfulness compared to them. No, no, no. The Bible says there's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's only one. There's not the faith of Catholics, the faith of Baptists, the faith of Lutherans, you know, the faith of the Pentecostals. No, no, no. There's only one faith. And that's you having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. That there was a time in your life that you recognized, no matter how religious or what kind of family you grew up in, you were a sinner and you were lost. That's the first step. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. You have a personal relationship, you have a family relationship with Jesus Christ. You've received the same faith. And so a Roman Catholic or a Baptist or a Lutheran or Pentecostal has to come to Christ the same way. It's not by the doctrines of their church. It's not being, by being a member or being baptized. It's by them personally making the decision one day that I'm lost and I see Jesus Christ finish the work of salvation for me on the cross. He died for me. And only God can open a heart to receive that message. You know that? Only God can do that. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Even the faith to believe is something that God gives us. That day the light went on in your head and you said, Oh, that was the Lord. No, you had to make a decision, didn't you? The Bible says, men has received him. You had, to, you had to respond to the work of God. As men has received him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed in his name. But you couldn't believe till God opened your eyes and you saw your lost condition. So God gets all the glory for our salvation. But you've received the same faith as Peter, so you have the same opportunity to be found faithful as Peter did. There's not different kinds of faith. We talk about sometimes that guy really got saved. Well, there's no, there's there's not kind of got saved and really got saved. There's only real salvation, right? There's only one kind, and that's what he's emphasizing here. And we come to faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. We'd all agree about that. Jesus demonstrated His righteousness. He was the innocent Son of God, and He paid the price for our sin on the cross. And he said about himself, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not through a church, not this church or any other, but by personal relationship, personal, a personal talk that you had with God where he convicted you of your lost condition and you recognize that you said, God, I'm a sinner. You confess that. And you also confess, Lord, I believe that you died for me, that you paid my price. And I receive you as my Savior. Verse 2, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace. Now, we can be around religion, and those those are religious words, grace and peace, grace and peace. But what do they mean? Well, ask a lot of Christians, and they say, well, grace is just unmerited favor. Yes, it's unmerited favor. Somebody comes up to you, and they say, hey, would you do me a big favor? You haven't lived very long before you start saying, oh, what? Well, what's the favor, right? Well, I want you to run out to New York and meet the plane. My mom's coming in. What? No, no, you already committed. So what is the favor? How do we define what the favor is? Grace is unmerited, is not deserved, but it is the power and the desire to please God. It is the power and the desire to do the will of God left to your own apart from grace. You have no desire to please God, only to please yourself. And even if you did have the desire, you'd have no power to do it. You could not do it. And so it's unmerited, but that's what it is. It's that power and desire to do the will of God. And what is peace? Peace is that confidence that you're right where God wants you to be, that you're going the right direction in spite of adversity, in spite of the waves, your eyes are in Jesus, and you have the confidence, the peace. I, I like to use the illustration of football because that, that just makes sense to me. In a football field, if you were making touchdowns, there was no defense out there, big deal, right? And when we had d, d football in Laramie, and we won a lot, uh, it wasn't fancy. And many times, it was three, cloud, three yards in a cloud of dust. Because it could be fourth and long, and DTI would say, All right, call the quarterback, get the guys together, special play, belly 32. I remember one time, one of the guys said, Coach, they can hear you. He said, I don't care that he walked over the opposing team. He was so I love him. He said, We're going through here. You block. You didn't have to study Laramie Films in those days. They're going to be running up the middle. That's what they did. Full T backfield, running up the middle. Here it comes. But those fullbacks that played for d they didn't have to be the fastest guy. But they had to be the kind of guy that knew he was going that direction no matter what. And even though you can't see the hole, this is where you're running right here. It'll open up when you get there, and you'll probably help open it up. See, that's peace. That's peace. Oh, there's adversity. There's guys trying to bring you down, take your head off, but you know you're going that way. That's peace. How do you get that multiplied? How do you get that kind of confidence in the Lord? Because if you know him, the more you get to know him, the more confidence you have in him, the more you become like him, the more you desire you have to please him, and the more power he places within you that you might be found pleasing to him. And so Peter's desire was for his people that they just be full of the power of Jesus and full of the confidence so that they might be found useful and fruitful, that they might be found faithful. He said, I I want that to be multiplied in your life. What did Peter found? Peter found the same thing Paul had, that Jesus is faithful. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. All you have to do is follow. Sometimes Jesus leads in some dark and dangerous places, but what is it? He's always faithful. Then verse 3 and 4, Peter says, Now, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And he said, listen, if you've trusted Christ your Savior, you have everything, God has given you everything you need for success. He has given you the Holy Spirit. He's bought you from darkness to life. He's given you his life. He has given you giftedness for the purposes for which he saved you. And he said, it's magnificent. Peter never got over watching God work in people's lives. He never got bored with it. He never got bored with evangelism. He never got bored with sharing the gospel because like Paul, he found out that it is the power of God into salvation. So he just kept sharing it, kept sharing it, and kept trusting God to use it. And Peter wanted his people to have that kind of confidence after he left. He left. Now, he says, for this very reason, I want you to apply all diligence. Now, verse 5, all diligence. Some Christians have the idea, every time you talk about effort on our part, that, oh, that's legalism. No, no. When I would coach in the weight room, guys would come in and i said, say, listen, first of all, don't worry about what anybody else is doing. You look at me. It's the hardest thing for young men because they all think they know about lifting, you know. Yeah, I, I, know, I, know, I know lifting, yeah. It's the hardest thing. F- you know, girls would come in, they would listen to me, and they'd do a perfect squat the first time, but not guys. Very unusual for guys to do the first squat perfectly because they already know this stuff. Yeah, yeah, we know it. And after they do it wrong or maybe hurt themselves, and they start listening. And I tell them, first of all, I want you to watch me with your eyeballs. And I want you to listen to the words that I'm saying. I'm going to speak in English. And then I want you to do what I tell you. And when you come in, I don't, don't worry about what anybody else. There's, there's some kids come in and they're just naturally strong. They're just strong. Remember, a football player used to play at University Walt Goffigan. He coached here too. And, and that guy was amazing. His training diet was Pepsi and M&Ms. He had 2% body fat. I think they studied him. And he could bench 400 pounds. I mean, he just had bones. You got bones. You can be strong. And some guys have leverage just the way your body works. Some guys are better at deadlift. Some better at bench press. You know, just the way your body's built. But I said, don't worry about what anybody else is doing. You're not in competition with them. We're just here to make you stronger. That's the Holy Spirit saying, listen, this is about you and me walking together. Just look at me. Just follow me a step at a time. But it's going to take some effort. Now, some of those guys would come in, and you asked them before, they didn't care much about lifting, but all of a sudden they found out. I found this with with older men, too. They'd come into gyms that I was working, and they'd, they'd see the great big guy walking around like this, and they'd say, I don't want to look like him. And I didn't believe them. I'd say, yeah, right, you don't want to look like him. I said, well, that doesn't happen by accident, you know. But we'd measure the little biceps, you know, measure their lats, and then we say, just do this. And two weeks, they come back in, and Whoa, they put on an inch. And they'd say, invariably, what's that guy doing? Because now they want to be like him because they think it's possible. Listen, we can be like Christ. He has gifted you. He has put that energy, that power, that desire in you. Just follow today, one step at a time. And so... When those young men, especially, that's why I work with, young men, would they figure out, oh, man, I can get stronger? Guess what? They started putting diligence to it. See, God gets all the glory, but he's the one that put that desire in you. Is it going to take some effort? Yes. But discipline is a grace too, is it not? That desire to get up and and just, just follow the Lord, that's grace. And so Peter says, listen, I want you to give all diligence to this, In your faith, I want you to supply moral excellence. That's virtue. First, in Peter's lift, the moral excellence is a word that is a classical Greek. It means the God-given ability to perform heroic deeds. Isn't that amazing? The God-given ability to perform heroic deeds. I found this with young men. You tell them, hey, listen, you just do what I say. You drink a gallon of milk a day. Yeah, mom, gallon a day. And you just come in here and you be faithful. Unbelievable how strong, much stronger you can get. Because I know something. When a guy's 18 to 25 years old, man, he's got hormones in his body that are helping the coach, right? Even 16, they just start getting big. God's put that in you. The moral, he's put that in you to do heroic deeds for Jesus Christ. The God-given ability. It also came to mean that quality of life which made someone stand out as excellent. It never meant cloistered virtue or virtue of attitude, but virtue was as demonstrated in life. Peter's writing of moral energy, the power that performs deeds of excellence. That's in there. That's in there for you to be like Christ. So when you read about Jesus and his answers and his decisions, you say, "Oh Lord, I want to be like that. And the more you pray that, the more God wants that for your life. Then he said, I want you to add to that virtue knowledge. Paul wrote Timothy. He said, Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It means understanding, correct insight, truth, properly comprehended and applied. So you're not buying every wind of doctrine that comes down the road. You're testing things in your mind. You hear somebody on TV If you're like me, you listen to him and you go, oh, no, that's not what the Bible says. How come? Because you have the Holy Spirit. And some guy comes through town and he's got a big, hey, you can become rich, just give to me. And you go, no, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he became poor for our sakes, right? That we might be rich through him, but not about this world. How come you know that? Isaiah eight twenty 20 says, to the law and to the testimony, they speak not according to this book because they don't have any vision. But you have that insight. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit. And your desire is, I want to know the truth. I want to know what God's word says. He says, God, put that in there. Give it that, that vent in your life that you can grow in the knowledge of Christ. Truth. And then he says, verse 6. Add to your knowledge self-control. That's the idea of literally holding yourself in. In Peter's day, self-control was used of athletes who were to be self-restrained and self-disciplined. We understand that, don't we? You're going to be an athlete. you got to say no to some things, don't you? You have to say no to late nights before a game. And you got to say no to, to late nights when you're training if you're going to get stronger because your body needs rest as much as it needs food and exercise. In fact, it needs rest more. And if you burn the candle at both ends, eventually you're going to be weak. And there's certain things you can't do. You, can't, you just can't go out and do what everybody else does because you're an athlete and what? You want to win. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9. Everyone who competes in the Olympics games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable. They would give them a wreath in those days. Now we get a gold medal. But, you know, do you remember how many people won the Olympics in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s? Thirty-two. 32s. I think it was 30, 36. Jesse Owens. But we don't remember that many. Why? Because it fades in our minds. Great athletes, they just fade. He said, they do all this discipline to get something that just kind of fades with age. But we, we compete for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run in a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. You know, you don't get a gold medal because you can really put on a good show with your fist. No opponent, Right? He said, in my life, I want to land some blows. I want to run to win. Because of that, he said, I beat my body and make it my slave. Because your body gets up in the morning and it lies to you. Especially after the first workout. First workout, you've had all the days. You know, they used to call it two days, three days. Now in football, just all day long. Just go all day. And the next day you get up and you're like, oh, oh. And your body says, you should just lay here. But the first time guys go through a circuit training, you know, they get to the end and they're saying, oh, no, my body's saying this is not good for me. Why? Because my heart's pounding. I feel kind of sick to my stomach. They look kind of green around the gills. Your body lies to you. But when you're feeling bad and you feel like quitting, you're supposed to be in charge of your body. Paul says, I beat my body and make it my slave. I make my body do what I need it to do, not just what my body says to do. Self-control. Self-control. And then he says perseverance. The word is patience or endurance, the ability to endure pain. You see, self-control, that's holding you back from doing things you want to do that you shouldn't do. And perseverance is making yourself continue to do what you're supposed to do. It's patience, it's endured. Self-control has to do with handling the pleasures of life, while patience relates primarily, primarily to the pressures and the problems of life. The ability to endure a problem, uh, the, the ability to endure, excuse me, the ability to endure is being long-suffering. Often the person who gives in to pleasures is not disciplined enough to handle the pressures either, so he gives up. And the Bible says, if you belong to Christ... You're losing your love for the world and the pleasure. That's not the greatest joy. That's not the greatest pleasure. It's knowing Christ, knowing him and pleasing him. Sometimes in our life, we have those little spaces and we say, well, what would life be without a little bit of sin? So I've just kind of left this little cupboard back here in my life. And, you know, I just break into it once in a while because you don't got to have a balance, you know. No, no, no. Holy Spirit goes right to that little hidden area, I want in here. He wants to cleanse all of our lives. We can have self-control. You can say no to yourself in the power of the Holy Spirit. You could be like Christ. Then he says, I want you to add to that self-control and to that perseverance, godliness. It simply means like God, God God-likeness. In the original Greek, this word meant to worship well. It described the man who was right in his relationship with God and with his fellow man. Perhaps the word reverence and piety come closer to defining this term. It is that quality of character that makes a person distinctive. Distinctive, he lives above the petty things of life, the passions and pressures that control the lives of others. He seeks to do the will of God, and as he does it, he seeks the welfare of others. We must never get the idea that godliness is impractical, that it just kind of lives over here in a chapel somewhere. No, godliness is very practical. It's intensely practical, the godly person makes the kind of decisions that are right and noble. He does not take an easy path simply to avoid pain or trial. He does, he does what is right because it is right and because it is the will of God. Now, when you as a believer, when I as a believer hear that, it makes me think of Jesus and it stirs up, even though we stumble, even though we fail, fail. when you have that relationship with God, because you have that DNA, it stirs up that desire, yes, I want to be like that. I want to be that bold and noble person that can be an encouragement to others by my walk. I want to have that breastplate of righteousness that I'm not discouraged or deterred from doing what God has called me to do. And then he says, brotherly love, verse 7. If we love Jesus Christ, we love the brethren also. We practice an unfeigned, a sincere love of the brethren. The fact that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ is one evidence that we have been born of God, 1 John 5, 1 and 2. In 1 John 4, John says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Now, there are no perfect people in church. There aren't yet. We're people who are being perfected, right? We're we're in the process of being sanctified. And one day we're going to stand perfect before the Lord. But the way he sanctifies us is this togetherness that we have as we learn how to love one another and put up with one another and to endure with one another. And to give with one another. In our small group, it's kind of a joke. If, if somebody needs help doing something, you know, we, we throw out there First John 3.16. Well, be thou warm to fill, brother. We'll be praying for you. Why is that funny? Because we know that God said, if that's the only way you love is just by your words. When you could go help, then you don't have the love of God. Because the love of God shows up. And it ministers, and it helps, and it loves. It serves. He said, if you have the wherewithal to meet your brother's needs, food, shelter, clothing, whatever that brother needs, and you say, oh, well, I need to pray about that. When you have the wherewithal, he said, that's not love. You might call it stewardship. God calls it being stingy, right? You have the ability. You don't say, brother, I'll be praying for you. You say, brother, I will be there. I'll, breathe, I'll be there. And that, that word is phileo, love. And then he says, add to that brotherly love, love. That's agape love. That's self-sacrificing love. Because Jesus laid his life down for us, so we ought to lay our life down for one another. See, that's serious, and that can only come from God. And th- that's not just a feeling. It's nice if you have the feeling, go along with it, but sometimes it's just being there because agape love is responsibility. It's your ability to respond to one in need. That's God's love. God demonstrated his love to us in the while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't the ones in need. And Jesus came and took our place. In verse 8, Peter goes on to say, listen, the one thing that we need as humans in life is purpose. We need to know it's purpose. In times like these, when there's turmoil going around, and it seems like the morals of this world have been turned upside down, and they call good evil, and they call evil good, and just don't even know who you can trust anymore. We need to make sure that we don't forget that we have a purpose for God, and that is to be useful and fruitful. He said, now, if you're growing in these qualities, godliness, in self-control, in perseverance, in loving your brother, in growing in the knowledge of Christ, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. How are we, how can we be useful Paul said, "In a large house, Second Timothy two. Now a large house there are not not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earth and well and some earth and wear and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee youthful lusts, pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace." with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. See, you can be a vessel that God can use. You've been set free from sin. You don't have to live there anymore. You don't have to be controlled by the flesh. You can be useful. And that's a desire that God has put in your heart. If you belong, I want to be useful to God. See, if you don't belong to God, it's all about you. And how can you use God and church and religion and morals so that you can have a better life, have a better marriage, but if you belong to God, you say, Lord, use me. I want to know when I get to heaven, they will say, you did what I called you to do. You did. You fulfilled the purpose for which I saved you. Paul in Philippians said that. He said, no, I, 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 haven't, I haven't accomplished it yet. I haven't, I haven't gotten there yet. But I, I continue to stretch out and reach forward to the prize, the purpose of the calling for which he saved me. He saved you on purpose, and he's gifted you for a purpose. And to fulfill that purpose, he wants to say to you, well done. We want to be useful. Secondly, he said, I know the desire of every true believer is that we be fruitful. Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. They gather them, cast them in the fire, they're burned. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. He saved you. You're attached to the vine. If you abide in the vine, you're going to produce fruit. He wants you to be fruitful. That's his desire. And if you really belong to the Lord, you want to be fruitful in your relationship with the Lord too. Verse nine, he says, Now if these things, these qualities are in you. In verses five through seven, if 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 you don't have these qualities, then one of two possibilities. If these these are not your desires, this is not to say jump higher. He's just saying, as a serious believer, you look at your life and say, Where am I growing and where do I lack? And you say, I'm good. Then you have permission to see if you're really saved or not. Because he is one of two things. Either you're short-sighted, you've forgotten you were saved from your sin. Or you're blind, you never were saved. You got religion, but no power. No relationship. Verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make sure about his calling and choosing you for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Peter wants them to remember make sure you're saved. What are you trusting now? Is there life? Just see that genetic life of Jesus Christ trying to get out in your life. When a baby's born, it just grows. I, I remember, I don't, I don't can't remember which one of Aaron's kids it was, but one of the boys. It was Boone or Fisher. But it seemed like Stacy was bringing him in a bucket one week, and the next week he was charging down the middle aisle with the kid gang around here. I'm like, when did that happen? They just grow so fast. Penelope went with her mom out to visit Andrew out in Utah, and he, she came back and her cheeks were like this. How'd that happen? It's called... Growth. And if you have Christ, you desire to be like him, you just grow. You just do. You have to quench the Holy Spirit not to grow. And so he says, listen, I want you to be strong. I want you to be confident in your salvation because if you're confident, if you're secure, that's when you're going to be courageous. That's when you're going to be useful. And that's when you're going to be fruitful. Verse 11. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior will be abundantly supplied to you. Abundantly. Peter piles up the words to bring joy to the weary Christian heart. An abundant entrance into eternal heaven is the hope and reality for a Christian who lives a faithful, fruitful life here on earth. Peter's point is that a Christian who pursues the listed virtues will not only enjoy assurance in the present, but a rich, full Reward in the future life. He wants to be secure in your salvation. He wants to be fruitful. Peter wanted his people to be rewarded when they got to heaven. In verses 12 through 15, Peter said, my, wonder, my number one job. I'm about to die. I know they're building the cross for me out there. I'm about to go be with the Lord, and whenever you remember me, I want you to remember me reminding you about these things. I want to stir you up. I want to warn you. I want to challenge you. Therefore, I'll always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. You've already been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus has made it clear to me. And I will be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. He said, I want you to remember this. When I'm dead and I'm gone, I still want my words ringing in your ear. Are you sure you belong to Jesus? Do you know him? Are you saved? Are you born again? Why? It's the most important decision you'll ever make in this life. Make sure you know him. In times like these when it seems the world is upside down and everything's coming apart. Do you know Christ? Do you know Him? Father, we thank you for your word and the promise that we can know you, that we can know for sure that you want us secure in your love. And Lord, examine our hearts. Lord, winnow out the chaff, burn out the dross, that we may be vessels that are useful for you, that we might be fruitful. Lord, that we might hear from you, well done. You did what I called you to do, Lord. Oh, Lord, that that might be the goal, not our 401k, not our career. Lord, those are opportunities, but Lord, that we might be found faithful in your calling and choosing us. We'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.